Well, guys, I, uh, I so have looked forward to, to being back here and to, um, to being able to share with you guys. And it's, it's kind of weird, but when you get away for that long, there's so many different things that God begins to show you that when you come home, you're like, oh my gosh, where do we start and what do we do? And, and, and where do we begin this, this process again? And I really just felt like that, that maybe where God wanted me to begin was back with the issue of prayer and us looking at what it means to come into the presence of God and, and how to pray in the presence of God. And so if you've ever struggled with prayer, maybe not knowing quite how to pray or what to pray or uh, how to focus your mind or how to, you know, well, your mind may wander and, uh, or maybe your words just seem so small, or you've got situations where you don't even know what to pray and how to pray and and uh, or maybe like me, you feel like you were just kind of in a rut, and 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 looking for something fresh. Maybe you're not sure how to pray or, or what to say, or maybe you're here today and your prayer life is is pretty good, but you just want to go a little deeper. You want to take it to a, a whole nother level. I'm hoping that you'll find this message to be both encouraging and practical for you. Uh, I do want to say this right up front, just to be clear. This what I want to share with you this morning is not a formula okay this is not six steps to encountering God it's not all those kind of things these these are going to be just practical tips and tools that we learn from some stuff in the old testament about how to come into the presence of God so it's not a a formula that you need to memorize it's not a a thing that you need to repeat every time you come in to God's presence but uh, prayer is not repeated it's not rehearsed it's not something that that is wooden in 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 inanimate it's a a relationship with God and just like when I come in to my home and I greet my family I don't say the same thing to them every single time we meet where we are and we converse together and we share life and do life together and we share our hearts with one another and and that's what prayer is meant to be not some kind of rehearsed repeated thing that doesn't draw us near to God. The things I want to share with you today, I hope, will be visual. I'm a, I'm a visual learner, and when I can see something and, and picture it in my mind, then it kind of helps to guide me into, and to do. And so I hope these things that we share today will be kind of visual reminders or, or prompts that you can use as you go deeper in prayer and as you encounter God in, in fresh and new ways and as you seek to draw near to Him. Uh, before I left, I was doing some teaching with you guys, and and I said that, that in the Old Testament, we see what we, we call pictures, things in the Old Testament that were a picture of something that was yet to come in the New Testament. We said that there were, there were pictures that pointed forward to Christ, but in the New Testament, we find the person of Christ. And once you have the person, you don't really need the picture. It, it's nice to have that. We went on a trip, and, and we took pictures of things that we wanted to remember. And right now, those things are still fresh. <laughs> right now, those things are still locked in my memory. But a week from now, I may need to look at the pictures and say, oh, yeah, that's what that mountain looked like. That's what that river stream looked like. That's what that waterfall looked like. That's, that's those icicles that were huge that were hanging from the side of the cliffs. Pictures serve a purpose to remind us of, of the reality, to remind us what's there. But the picture's never meant to take the place of the reality. And so as we move into this today, we're going to see that in the Old Testament, there were some symbols and some shadows. But in this New Testament, God gives us the substance. We're, we're going to see the picture in the Old Testament, but we're going to see the person here in the New Testament. And so what I'm going to try to do is to, to bring these two things together as we, as we do. The, the New Testament teaches us much about, I mean, the Old Testament teaches us a lot about the, the substance that we're going to find in the New, New Testament. These pictures, 
point to the person. And the person that they point to is the one who made it possible for us to come into God's presence in prayer and to enjoy intimate fellowship with God. So I want you to, to remember this is just a picture. Uh, we've, we've got the person, Jesus Christ, now. And, and these pictures are just good to remind us and to refocus us upon the person of Jesus Christ. So looming very, very large in the Old Testament is this picture of a tabernacle that God uh, instituted, that God gave specific directions and, 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 and measurements and, and told them what's going to go in it and what it's going to look like and how it's going to fit together. And so in the Old Testament, we see this picture of the tabernacle. One scholar that I read that writes uh, almost exclusively on the tabernacle said that in the Old Testament and New Testament, you find 50 chapters of God's word, 50 chapters that deal with the tabernacle. He said that's more on the tabernacle than there is really any other subject in Scripture. And yet many of us know very little about the tabernacle. I know as I began to study it and and began to look at the the different imagery and the different items that God placed in there and began to understand some of the ways that that pictured some things that were going to happen in the New Testament, it really began to make sense to me. And I I just confess to you that I didn't know a, a whole lot about this going into it, but but what happened was God met with Moses. They, God had delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He then meets with Moses on the mountain. Remember, Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and met with God. And while Moses was there with God, God gives him specific blueprints for this thing that's going to be called the tabernacle. It was going to be, at first, a tent that everywhere they traveled, they would set up this tent. And, and, and I want to specify, when we talk about the tabernacle, I always picture the tabernacle as being the whole thing, everything inside the tent. But, but specifically, the tabernacle is the, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. And we'll show you a picture of that in just a minute. There's a compound around it that, that wouldn't be considered technically the, the tabernacle, but it's yet a part of that process. And so we're going to look at that this morning. But in Exodus chapter 25, if you've brought your Bibles today and... Man, I really hope that you'll bring your Bibles when you come to worship because there's going to be things that you're going to need to highlight or circle or note or, or, or read for yourself. And, and it's, it's one thing to hear. It's another thing to combine hearing with reading. And, and it just seems to help these things lock in. So, man, bring, bring your Bible and, and let's read the Word together. So in Exodus chapter 25, the, the first nine verses, it says this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, this is when he's on the mountain, Speak to the people of Israel. Uh, that they take for me a contribution. So they're going to take up an offering. And every man whose heart moves him. I think this is interesting. When God asks us to give, he's asking those whose hearts have moved them to give. Not just, if, if you don't want to give, don't give. But, but those whose hearts have been moved toward God. So those whose hearts have been moved, shall, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is a contribution that you receive from them. We're going to, here's what God says. This is what we're going to need to build this tabernacle. We're going to need gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. We're going to need oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the, the breastplate, the best breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary. Think about this. God wants to come and dwell in the midst of his people. He says, I want you to collect this offering, to gather these things, because I'm about to give you the blueprints to a sanctuary. It's a sanctuary that I may dwell in their 
midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God calls them in the Old Testament to, to do this. They're, they're, they've just been released from Egypt. They're, they're there in the wilderness. And now God's saying, I don't want you just to wander in the wilderness alone. I want to come dwell with you. I want to be in your midst. When the tabernacle was set up, they would set it up in the center of all the people. They would, they would specify these, these clans are going to stay to the east and these to the west and these to the south and these to the north. And God specified all that, but God gave them the exact measurements and details of every piece of furniture and every single item that was going to be inside this tabernacle and inside this compound. He told them what to make the curtains out of, what to, what to, to, to do to decorate the, the, um, the robe that Aaron was to wear, and, and every bit of that had symbolism. Every bit of there were stones that were going to go in this breast piece that was going to represent all 12 tribes. There was two stones that were going to go on the shoulder piece that would represent the, the people of God so that when the priest went before God, he was literally taking the people with him into the presence of God. In, in this tabernacle, there were so many things that pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. But God says to Moses on the mountain, let me give you the blueprints. This is exactly how I want it built. And the reason that God gave him the blueprints for this earthly tabernacle was that it was going to be a copy of a heavenly tabernacle. It was going to point forward to something in heaven. And that something that it was pointing forward to was Jesus Christ himself. So God says, I want you to make this exactly the way I tell you to make it because every item in this from the materials that it's made out of, to the shape, to the size, to everything, is going to be something that points forward to the coming of your Messiah. And then God doesn't leave Moses to do it on his own. God says to Moses, I'm going to give you a guy. It's in, in, in Exodus chapter 31, if you want to read it later. But I'm going to anoint some people with my spirit, fill them full of my spirit, give them the supernatural ability to create exactly what I've done. They're craftsmen. They're not going to be preachers. They're not going to be priests. They're not going to be the high priest. They're just men with a trade that I'm going to anoint to be able to do extraordinary work on this tabernacle and to build it the way that I want it built. The reason that every detail was so critical was that it was going to be a copy or a duplicate of this reality in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, you may just want to jot that down. Uh, it may take you a while to find it, but Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, it says, these, these things serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So this thing that they were going to build in the Old Testament is mentioned again in the New Testament. And, and it says the reason that God told him to build it exactly like I told you is that it's going to be something that's going to point forward to the coming Messiah. So even more important, it would come to represent Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. Now, my purpose today is not to explain every detail of the tabernacle. I don't understand every detail of the tabernacle. But what I want to do is show you the furniture and the things that were placed in the tabernacle and show you how those things can be visual images that as you bow your head in prayer, they can be things that bring you into the presence of God. There was a process that the people of the Old Testament had to follow in order for, for, for them to come before the Lord. And there were things that they had to do. And I think this furniture and this setup that God gives him is going to be something that will, will provide us a picture, a visual, if you will. How many of y'all are visual learners? You see something, you go, ah. 
Okay? I'd rather have a picture than, than a set of written instructions. I'd rather, you know, when, when, when something comes in, 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 in that, that I have to put together, I'm like most men. I just open it up, throw the instructions to the side, and start trying to figure out how it all fits together. And then only when it doesn't work right do I pull out the instructions. And then I hope that they've got some diagrams that will show me how it's going to do. I'm, I'm very visual. Usually when I drive to a place, once I go there once, I can get there from now on. Because there's landmarks, there's things I remember. I'm pretty visual. So this helps me. It may not help you. You may be written and you may need to go back and read through this Old Testament passages, these 50 chapters in the Bible to help you. But, but let me show you some of the things that are going to be in this tabernacle. We've got a picture that we're going to put on the screen. And this is, this is basically what it would look like from a, a bird's eye view. You've got the, the, the fence or the curtain that went all the way around the compound. Uh, you've got this gate in the front here. And this will be facing the east, okay? Every time they set it up, it would be facing the east. But you've got this, this gate that they would proceed through. The first thing they're going to come to is this brazen altar where the sacrificial uh, animals were, were offered before the Lord. The priests would do that. The people could come into the courtyard, and, and they would bring their animals. The priests would slay them. They would sling the blood on the altar. They would lay the meat on the fire the way God told them to. Behind that, you see a, a, a laver or a, a basin, a water basin. And this was a basin that the priests would go to again and again throughout the day. And they would wash themselves. And they would clean themselves. They were required to, to wash their hands and their feet before they went to the altar and offered sacrifices. They were also required to wash their hands and their feet before they went into the tent that you see there in the back middle. This is what we would technically call the tabernacle, the part covered with the three coatings of, of animal skins that would go over that. And so I want to open it up now with a, with a drawing and show you what's inside the tent. So let's go to the other picture there. Uh, again, we got the doorway at the beginning. You've got this, this brazen altar. You've got the, the laver that's there they would wash in. And then you go through another center curtain, and you would enter into what's called the holy place. Inside the holy place, there was a table of showbread, and there was a golden, lamp, uh, golden candlestick that had seven different candles that, that burned off of it. And then the altar of incense was right in front of the veil. Now, those of you that have studied the Bible know that the veil stood there, and nobody was allowed to go beyond the veil except for the high priest. The priest could come into the holy place if they had been cleansed and, and, and sacrifices had been made to purify them. Then they were allowed to go into the holy place as priest and to serve in there. But only specific priests were allowed to do that. But then only once a year could the high priest go into the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And that symbolized the presence of God among his people. So only once a year could the, the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood upon the, the mercy seat that was on top of the ark. And so you've got this ark, which is a, is a golden box. And the Bible gave him specific dimensions for it. It had rods that, that came out because you could not touch the, the ark. They had rods that came out. You think about Indiana Jones, okay? This is not Indiana Jones, okay? But it's an ark. And on top of that ark was a solid gold lid. And on top of that lid was two cherubim that stood facing the mercy seat with their arms and their wings stretched out. So much symbolism in the Old Testament. You think about the cherubim. Remember where else we saw the cherubim? When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, God placed cherubim at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword making sure that man could not re-enter into the presence of God. And now we see those same cherubim here over the mercy seat with arms open wide, welcoming God's people 
into God's presence. So much symbolism in the Old Testament that, that points us forward. But, but here we see this, this outer curtain. There was one door. If you wanted to get into this, this presence of God, you had to come through that one door. You, you came immediately into the presence of this altar of sacrifice. And then the washing, and then you get in there and you've got the bread and the lampstand and the, and the altar of incense that's in front of the, the veil. And then only the high priest could go once a year and make atonement on the Day of Atonement for the, the sins of the people. Uh, every part of this tabernacle is going to point us forward to Jesus. And I want to take just a minute and kind of walk you through some ways that each of these little items can point us forward to Jesus. When we look back at that, at that drawing, Janet, um, we have the door. If you were going to get into this, the only way that you would get in alive is to come in through the door. If anybody tried to sneak in any other way, then, then they, would, they would experience the, the wrath of God and the judgment of God. When we see that door, we are reminded of Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, verse 6, saying this, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father except through me. In other places in Scripture, Jesus describes himself as being the the gate that the sheep have to come through and and, and that he was the one that guarded the the entrance, that he he was there. And so we see that if you're going to come into the presence of God, you have to come through the door. You have to come through Jesus Christ. But then as soon as you step inside that door, what do you see? What's the first thing that you're encountered? It's this brazen altar of sacrifice. What does that remind us of? It reminds us, first of all, of our sinfulness. Why does there have to be a sacrifice? Why does there have to be an animal slaughtered? Why does there have to be blood shed? Why, why does that have to take place? Why, why is that the first thing I see when I come through the door? The first thing i got to see is my sin and the price of my sin and the cost of mankind's sin. If we're going to come into the presence of God in prayer, we come through Christ, and the first thing we're confronted with is our sinfulness and the cost of our sin. And in the Old Testament, they didn't see this. In the New Testament, we can look back and see that Jesus was the lamb. Because when they came to to offer their their sacrifice, they had to bring a a spotless lamb without defect, without fault. And, And that means that nothing I have could I bring that would satisfy the holiness of God. But we know that Jesus was that lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He offered himself... Not the the blood of bulls and goats, the Bible says in Hebrews, but he offered himself as the sacrifice. And so when I come into the presence of God through prayer, I come in Jesus' name. I come through Christ, but immediately I am confronted with a couple different things. Now, there's two ways to look at this. I'm immediately confronted with how sinful that I am, but I'm also confronted with how gracious God is that he would offer his only begotten son. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we are reminded that we didn't have to get good enough to come, that we just came as we are, and that Jesus had provided the sacrificial lamb. He provided it himself, his blood. And so we see that immediately. 
If we go beyond the, 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 the brazen altar, we come back to this brazen laver or this, 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 this um, fountain, not a fountain, but a, a washing place that they could wash. And it reminds me that even after I'm in Christ, and even after I've accepted the, the salvation and the forgiveness, that, that there is a daily, moment-by-moment fellowship with God that involves confession and repentance in my life, that I'm constantly... These guys didn't just get washed once a day. They were constantly washing and constantly cleansing. And they came there at the, at the laver in the water basin, and they washed before the sacrifices, and they washed again and again and again. Reminding me in prayer that I constantly need to be coming before the Lord and asking him to cleanse me of those impure thoughts, to cleanse me of those impure motives, to cleanse me of not representing him and not serving him honestly and, 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 and nobly before him, that, that I'm there to, to be cleansed and to be washed. And we're reminded of 1 John 1, nine, where it says, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. So as we come into the presence, we come in Jesus' name. We, we, we remember the great sacrifice that Jesus paid on behalf of our sin. It, it, it encourages us to come clean before God and to confess to him the other sins in our lives that, that we may want to keep hidden, but, but we need to just have it exposed and have God cleanse that sin. And that's all done in the courtyard. That's where the common people come. Now the priests were allowed to go into the building, into the tent itself, to enter into the tabernacle. But to go into the tabernacle proper, you had to be a priest. What that meant was this, that you and I would never be allowed access to the innermost workings of God. We would never, ever on our own be allowed to come into his presence and, and, and walk into the holy place and to see the bread and to see the candlestick and to see the altar of incense. We would not be allowed into that room. But for the fact that we have a high priest named Jesus who has now made us priests in the kingdom of God. So when we are in Christ, when our sins have been atoned for, when we've been washed and forgiven, then we are invited by Christ. We are made into this kingdom of priests, this kingdom that, that can serve uh, in the presence of God. And we are invited to go into that next step where the common man of Israel would have been excluded. Because of what Jesus did, we are invited to come on in. And when we step behind that, that outer curtain and we go into this inner room, the, the holy place, we see in there several items. There's three items that are kept in the holy place. And as the priests would go in and minister before the Lord, these three things would aid in their ministry. Aaron was the, 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 the head of the priests. They were descendants of, of Aaron. And Aaron started off with himself and, and four of his sons that served. Two of his sons decided that they would kind of do their own thing in worship. And they had some, uh, the, the incense, God gave them the formula for the incense that he wanted them to burn. And he told them, he says, this is only to be burned before me. It's never to be burned in your home. Oh, I like the smell of that. I'm going to take it some home and, 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 and burn it in my home. And they made their own little altar of incense and, and they threw this 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 incense on the fire and God struck them dead 
And so it went from Aaron and four sons serving to Aaron and two sons serving. But it got the attention of the people and let them know just how holy and, and radical this was that God was calling them to. And so when you walk into that, that, that holy place, you're going to see three items that are there. And these three items all kind of work together. They're, they're, they, they serve each other and they help each other. The, the table of showbread reminds us of, of the bread. What this was was 12 loaves of bread that were laid out on a golden table. The 12 loaves re- re- reminded us and, and represented the 12 tribes of Israel, all of God's people. And they were constantly before the Lord. Once a week, the, the priests would take in 12 new loaves and they would remove the 12 old loaves. And then the priests were allowed to eat the, 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 the bread that was removed. But these 12 loaves stood before the Lord constantly and in God's presence constantly as a reminder that God's people were constantly before the Lord. But in the New Testament, we see that Jesus declares that I am the bread of life. That bread was picturing Jesus and and his people. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and Satan uh, challenged him to turn the stones into bread and Jesus says this, he says, I'm not going to do that. He says, it's, it's, for, for man does not live by bread alone, but man lives what? On every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This bread also represents the word of God. Jesus says, I am the word made flesh. And so when we look at this bread in there, it pictures Jesus and reminds us of us being in the presence of Jesus. And that Jesus is our bread of life. That the word of God is what nourishes our soul. And so even as we pray, we ought to be praying in in accordance with God's word. We ought to be praying in alignment with God's word. But there's a problem with that. That we are in a room now that's closed in on all sides with no windows. And there is no light. How do you study the word if there is no light? Well, God thought about that. And so he places in that room... A golden candlestick. This golden candlestick is made out of 75 pounds of pure gold. It's got a stem coming straight up, and then it's got three stems out each side. And they have bowls that, that pure oil is placed in, and a wick that can be lit, and it's to burn at night, all the way through the night till the next morning. And Aaron was to go in each day and to trim that. And, 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 and in that golden lampstand, we, 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 we picture Jesus being there. And, and we picture the Holy Spirit being that pure oil. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is giving light to the bread, light to the word. He's bringing light into that room. Illumination so that we can understand the word of God. Did you ever try to read the Bible before you were a Christian? And you're going, oh, this is the most boring book I've ever read. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. I've just been told I'm supposed to read it, so I read it. And there's no illumination. But the moment that we become believers and, and God places his Holy Spirit inside of me, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the Word of God. To make it understandable, to help us to apply it to our lives so that we can take that bread and we can ingest it and it can become a part of who we are. The light illuminates the bread. And the Holy Spirit and Jesus working together. Jesus was the light of the world, he said. 
And then he says to us that you are the light of the world. You are a city that is set on a hill that can't be hidden. He says, we don't light a candle and hide it under a bushel. We don't light a candle and put it underneath the bed. We, we put it up to where it gives light to the whole room. And so Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But then he goes farther to say, now you're the light of the world. And we are to make the word of God understandable by living it out and by helping other people to see it. But as we come before the Lord in prayer, we come according to God's word. This is some of the most powerful prayers that we can pray is to pray scripture back to God. Lord, this is what your word says, and this is what I want for my life. This is what David said. He was going to hide your word in his heart, Lord, that he wouldn't sin against you. And Lord, I'm struggling with sin, so I need you to help me hide your word in my heart that I wouldn't sin against you. And we pray the scriptures back to God, but the only way that we can do that is with the help of the Holy Spirit who is there illuminating the word and helping it to make sense to us and helping us to see things that ordinary man would not see. The New Testament tells us that those without Christ can't understand the scriptures. I read back through the Gospels while I was gone and, 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 and constantly seeing Jesus teaching a parable and, and the crowds are going, was he talking about us or somebody else? What, what did that mean? And the disciples who still hadn't been given the Holy Spirit in all fullness, pulling Jesus aside saying, hey, come here, come here. What did that mean? What, what, do, what did you mean by that parable? And Jesus saying, there's going to come a day where you're going to understand this, but let me explain it to you. And he would say again and again, they didn't understand because they had not yet been given the Spirit. The Spirit is there, and, and that's part of what that lamp, Jesus is a light. The Spirit is the light that's burning, and that makes the, the, the bread, the, the Word of God, make sense. And then you come to the altar of incense, which is right in front of that veil. And the altar of incense, every time they would go in and trim the lamps, the priest would then take the, 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 the incense that God had told them to mix, and he would put this on the fire, and he'd put this on this, this uh, altar of incense. And it was a sweet aroma that, that rose um, up into the presence of God. And every day they would add incense to this, this altar of incense. And it was a pleasing smell in the presence of God. And I think about how that Jesus prayed and pleaded before the Father. And it said that his prayers went up as this offering of incense before the Lord. And I think this is, this is a picture of our, not only our prayer, but our praise and our thanksgiving and all that we can offer then up to the Lord and say, Lord, look where you've brought me all the way from outside the camp, through the gate, past the altar. You've cleansed me. You've washed me. You've forgiven me. You've brought me in. You've shown me your word. You, you've given me your spirit. You've done all this, Lord. How can I stay quiet? How can I not then just praise you and give you glory and honor for all the things that you have done? It's a picture of this praise that we lift to the Lord, this glory that we give to God. It's a picture of the prayers that we, that we pray before the Lord, thanking him and, and praising him for everything that he's done and all that he is in our lives. Christ offered those prayers to the Father. Prayers of submission and obedience, where he says things that you and I ought to say, where we say, Father, this is, this is your will, not my will that I'm after. Here's what my flesh wants, but Lord, here's what I I think you want. And and I want you more than I want my flesh. It's those prayers we offer up to the Lord. Then there was that veil. Scholars say that veil was was about a a hand's width thick, three to four inches thick, a huge veil. 
that stood between man and God. No one was allowed into God's presence without blood. And even then, the priest was only allowed into the presence of God once a year. Before the high priest could go into the presence of God, he had to offer sacrifices for himself first, because he was a sinner, and then for the people. And he would take the blood from the sacrifices, and he would carry it in, 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 in where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top and those cherubim on top, he would sprinkle that blood upon that mercy seat as a covering for the sins of the people. Couldn't remove their sins, but it was a symbol of covering those sins. And that veil separated man from God. The presence of God was just beyond their reach, just beyond their their, their grasp, just beyond their sight. There was this presence of God, this Shekinah glory that dwelt there. And what's interesting is in that final holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant stayed, there was no light. Have you ever thought about that? There was no light. Just like the scripture says that when we get to heaven, there will be no more sun, no more moon, that all the light will be God himself. The Shekinah glory of God that dwelt there provided the light that they needed in that room. The glory of God could not be hidden. It could not be contained. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told about the veil. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 23 He says, therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now listen, the common people never would have done that. But because of what Jesus did, now we have confidence to enter into these holy places by the new and living way that Jesus opened up for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. Uh Uh-oh. The writer of Hebrews is now saying that this, this, this veil was a symbol of, of the flesh of Christ. And until the flesh of Christ was pierced, there was no access granted to the presence of God. But you know from Scripture that, that the moment that Christ died on the cross, and, and that the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, that God ripped that veil open, granting access to all who come through Christ, through Him. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that, that, it's, that there's a new and living way because Jesus is alive and he opened it up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. There's the labor of water from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because we're faithful? No. Because he who has promised is faithful. So as we bow in prayer, we, we look at this, this picture. And I hope that, that what you'll do is let this little map thing, let this just kind of, there's, there's not much to, to, to memorize here, but, but remember there's a door. And then there's this brazen altar. There's this laver that you would wash in. Then there's the word of God, the light of the spirit. There's the prayers of, of, of Christ and the saints and, and, and our offerings that join with them. And then we come into the Holy of Holies where there's this mercy seat that's been covered. The Bible says that, that Jesus made his way into this, this tabernacle, not made with man's hands, but made by God. And Jesus entered into that place. 
And as he entered into this holy of holies, he offered his own blood. It wasn't the blood of the bulls and the goats. But I want you to understand this. This pathway into the presence of God is only possible for those who come through the door of Jesus, who allow him to sacrifice himself for them, which means I've got to admit that I can't offer the sacrifice, that I have nothing to offer before the Lord that is pure and is holy. The only thing that I provide is the sinner himself, and God provides the rest. That he not only sacrificed his son, but now he washes me and cleanses me and cleanses my conscience from all the guilt of all that's been done. I come in and he opens up his word to me and he feeds me and teaches me and shows me how everything in the Old Testament begins to apply to the New Testament. Jesus is that bread of life. And then as we're there in the presence of the Lord, we look at this ark. This golden box covered with the mercy seat with the angels and the wings facing that seat, attentive to the presence of God. Inside that ark was three things that were kept. Anybody know what those three things were? Ten commandments. Okay. The manna, the golden jar of manna, and Aaron's staff. Those three things. The Ten Commandments represents God's holiness. And, and, and God's requirement for us, which none of us could meet. That's why we need mercy. The, the manna is God's provision because we couldn't provide for ourselves. God provided food in the wilderness. He provided Jesus as our sacrifice. And then Aaron's rod. That's a weird one. But not long after they got out into the wilderness and they set up this temple the people began to revolt and say, well, Aaron, you think you're all that. You, you say that you're the only one that can go in there, and you're the only one that can do this. And, and we've got people here that love God. We've got people here that are just as good as you, and, and we've got people that can do what you do. And they began to rebel and revolt against the leadership that God had established. <laughs> and God says, okay, well, get, get, a, get a, a, a rod, a, a staff from each of the tribes, 12, 12 of them, and, and have them write their names on them. And then I want you to bring those things before the ark and leave them there. And come back tomorrow, and we'll see which one God approved of. And they came back, and Aaron's rod had budded. And it was a symbol that God had chosen Aaron to be his leader. That God had chosen Aaron to be the one that came into his presence. That this tribe of Levites were chosen by God to serve him. And I look at that and I think, that's not a picture of God choosing a pastor and putting the pastor and saying, don't you dare you know, oppose your pastor. Not that I want you to do that, but that's not what God's saying here. But God's saying this, every one of you have been chosen by God. Out of the world, out of all the people who are just as rotten as we are, God has chosen us to come and to minister in his presence, to come and to minister on his behalf, to come and to represent our world before the Lord, to intercede for our world before the Lord. All of those things were there in the mercy seat, and they were sealed, and they were kept in there to remind the people of God's power and God's provision and of God's choosing them to be his. And so there in the mercy seat, we find 
this, this work of Jesus. And we find ourselves in front of that. And in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, this is the heavenly one, not the one made with hands, that's not of this creation, but Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places in heaven, not by the means of blood of bulls and goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus he secured an eternal redemption. For if the blood of, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, the eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Here's what he's saying. Jesus didn't bring the blood of an animal. When Jesus went into that tabernacle in heaven, into the real presence of God, he took his own blood. And he offered his own blood as a sacrifice and as a substitute, as a covering for our sin. That's what Jesus did. So you say, Rob, what's all this got to do with, with prayer? Well, let's do this. Let's, let's back out, if you would, just kind of mentally go with me. Back, back outside the compound, okay? And let me just kind of paint some pictures as we move through this. Here we are, wanting, desiring to be in God's presence. Isn't that why we pray? I want to come into God's presence. I want to experience God in his fullness. I want to... To, to let him be my daily bread. I want him to be all these things that he wants to be. So let's just back back outside. And I realize as I come to God in prayer that the only way I get to God is coming through Christ. So we come to God in prayer through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray in accordance with Jesus and the things that he would want and that he would allow. And I come... And the first thing I need to do is to fall on my knees before that brazen altar and thank him for the cross. Thank him for the sacrifice that he made that I could never have provided. So as I enter the presence of God in prayer, I come in Jesus' name, but I come recognizing all that Jesus did for me. And at that moment, I should break out in praise and in worship for what Jesus did for me. And then I'm reminded of my own sinfulness. And I ask God to cleanse me and to wash me and to make me pure. And as I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. And I get up clean and I say, but Lord, I want to go farther and I want to go deeper. And he pulls back the curtain to the holy place and he says, come on. As I walk in there, I take the word with me. And the Holy Spirit can illuminate the word of God and begin to open my mind and teach me the things. Lord, and, and that ought to be my prayer in that holy place is, Lord, teach me who you are, more of who you are, and more of what it means to belong to you and to be in your presence. Feed me from the bread. Open my eyes by your spirit. Let my response to you be a, a, a fragrant offering, Lord. We, make me that living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable and pleasing to you, as it says in Romans chapter 12. 
As I do that and I offer my praise to the Lord, I find myself then in the presence of Almighty God. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that Jesus did to make that way through his flesh into the presence of God. What does this have to do with prayer? If I can think of these images as I pray, again, not wooden, not memorized. It's different every single time you come. But just remembering what had to take place for you to come into the presence of God. And it gives you pause at every single stop to thank God and to praise God and to worship God for his provision and and for his love. And, And you know what the best part about this is? God didn't, the way the tabernacle got established was not Moses saying, hey God, we need a way to connect with you, so we're going to make this house and we're going to ask you to come live in it. Who initiated this? God did. God came and says, you need a way to connect with me. And I'm going to give you the blueprint. You needed a way to come into my presence and, and just to, to bask in my glory. And I'm going to make that possible. The Old Testament, they didn't get to do that. They stood at, at, at the door to their own tents all around this tabernacle, and they saw the cloud, and they saw the fire, and they saw the, 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 the glory of the Lord fill that place when Moses would go in, but the people couldn't go in. But Jesus made a way for us to go in. And it's only through him. So I don't know about you, but I know these images have helped to, to refocus my, my mind and, and my prayer as I, as I pray. And I start at that door and I just thank Jesus that he is the way and the truth and the life. And I'm reminded of the cost of my sin for my Savior. And I find cleansing again and again. And I see God with the Spirit of God illuminating the, the, the Word of God, the bread of life, and helping it to make more sense to me so that it can take root in my life. And guys, I just I have to fall on my knees and say, Lord, you deserve it all. And then to find myself ushered into his presence and to get a glimpse of his, his mercy and his grace and to see those angels with their arms spread wide in a, in a sense saying, come on. No longer a sword in their hands keeping us out of the presence of God. But now arms open wide inviting us into the presence of God. And to think that through prayer, I can be in the presence of Almighty God. Him looking upon me, seeing me clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Here we are in the presence of of Almighty God. The more we come to understand the pictures in the tabernacle and what they represent, we've only scratched the surface of that this morning, but the more you understand those things, the richer your prayer life can, can become. So I want you to use these items if that helps you. Again, don't be wooden. Don't be... Just, just come and, and, and express to God what comes to your heart as you picture what he did to make that possible. And remember this, it all starts at the door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Guys, listen, you can't get good enough to come to God on your own. Do yourself a favor and stop trying. Stop. Well, i got to be good. No, you don't. You've got to be a sinner to come in the presence of God. 
a sinner that has been sacrificed for, a sinner that's been cleansed, a sinner that God has loved and invited into his presence. That's all you've got to be as a sinner. So many of us are still trying to work for our salvation. We're still trying to get good enough to do that. It's what Jesus has done. That's what the tabernacle is about. It's God coming to us. In the book of John where it says that Jesus came and and dwelt among us, it's the word tabernacle. He came to tabernacle amongst us to make his dwelling in us. And he wants to live in you today. Let me ask you this. Have you come through the door? Not through religion. Do you know being a Baptist will do no more good to get you into heaven than anything else you can do? Joining a church doesn't get you into heaven. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that begins with you realizing the cost of your sin and the fact that it's a higher price than you could ever pay. And you falling on your knees and saying, Jesus, I need you to be my sacrifice. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to make a way for me to come into the presence of Almighty God. Have you done that today? My fear is that many in the church are religious. We, we go to church, we try to do good, we try to keep the rules, we, we try to live a life that's exemplary in front of our world. Nowhere in this do we see that as being grounds for coming into God's presence. It's only by the sacrifice of Jesus. And here's the best news in the whole world, is that God created you to be in his presence. Not just in eternity, but every moment of every day. He wants us to walk in his presence, in his fullness. To seek his face, to enjoy his favor, to enjoy his presence. That's what you were created for. To enjoy his presence, to enjoy his provision, to know him intimately. But there's only one way in. And that way is Jesus Christ. So if you're counting on any other way to get you into heaven, you're going to be disappointed. You see, it's only in the presence of God that we find this mercy seat for those who have come through Jesus. Do you know what awaits everybody else that doesn't come? It's a judgment seat. And we get to choose which seat we're going to appear before. The mercy seat or the judgment seat. Those who come through Christ get mercy. Those who try to come any other way will find God's judgment. So I want to encourage you today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I mean as as Savior and the Lord, and you've come through that door by his sacrifice into his presence, then this morning I want to invite you to consider making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. To, to, to use these images to say, Lord, I want to come into your presence, but I know I can't come on my own. I need Jesus to come and to live in me, to dwell in me, to change me, to make me presentable before God so that I can go straight into the presence of God and live with him forever. If you've never done that, man, I would love to hang out and to share with you how to do that before you leave here today. Because the greatest decision you'll ever make is to come through that door 
and to find in Jesus Christ everything your heart and your soul were created to be. Would you pray with me?